Follow as I read. We are going to finish up the sermon I didn't finish last week uh, in 1 John 3. And we're going to just read beginning at verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. For by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And so reads God's holy and errant word. As I mentioned, we didn't finish this last week and there are some other things we want to look at these latter verses here today, verses 21 to 24. As we come to the Lord's table today, we want to consider some of the blessings that come to the people of God as they become assured that they are truly united to Christ. John is writing his epistle. He's wanting true believers to have assurance in their hearts. I'm writing these things to you who have believed in Jesus that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so this is one of the main things that he is doing. And as he does this, he is, he is showing us what the fruit of the Spirit is in the life of a believer. A believer is one who's going to demonstrate a life that has been transformed by the grace of God. The new birth is something that is a supernatural work of God by the Spirit, where a heart is changed, fundamentally radically changed within. A stony heart has been taken out. A new heart has been given. And what are the fruits of that? What are the evidences of that? Well, John says, among other things, well, they are those who believe in Jesus. They have put their trust in Christ alone. And they are those who are seeking to walk in holiness. They are seeking to live righteous lives. If we know he is righteous, we know that everyone that has been born of him is practicing righteousness. So there is this moral dimension in their life. They're now living a new life and living in different ways. And then the one that we have been most recently looking at is that there is a love for the brethren, a love for God, but a love also that is seen in love for the people of God, that a Christian is one who will love what Christ loves, and he loves his church. He gave himself for her. And so John in verse 16 says, we know love because he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So he goes on to talk about if we have love, it's not something we just talk about. But we love indeed and we love in truth. And We were looking at these last week. And right in the middle of this, Epistle, John is again wanting to assure those who belong to Christ 
to give them the assurance that the word of God gives to those who are believers as they see the fingerprints of God's grace upon their lives. And we noticed last week that sometimes a true believer maybe might have some doubts. Their heart may condemn them, as John says here in verse uh, 20, for if our heart condemns us, I think he's speaking about a believer here, one who is truly a believer, but he has those times or she has those times of doubt and uncertainty. But God is greater than our heart, and God will assure his children that they are his. And I like the way the NIV translates this. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever it is that our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Do we see this mark of a love for the brethren? Well, even if our heart condemns us at times and we waver at times, we can see this. This has been brought about by the Spirit of God. There is a love for God's people, love for them, to seek to love them and to serve them. And this is one of the marks that John is setting forth here. But today we want to look at some of the blessings that come from the uncondemned heart. We notice here in verse uh, 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So the blessings of the uncondemning heart. And there are three of them that we want to look at here today. And John, again, his purpose is so that every blood-bought child of God can know and be assured that they belong to God, that they are assured of this salvation. And I think this will be the mark of a believer. They want to know this as well. They want to know that things are right between them and God as a result of the gospel and that they are in Christ. So here are three blessings that flow from a heart that has this assurance that they belong to Christ. The first is this. There is confidence before God. We see this in verse 20. In contrast to this heart that he sometimes condemns us, here is one who has been assured and his heart does not condemn uh, condemn him. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, The first thing he says is, therefore, we have confidence toward God. We have confidence toward God. We see that God has worked in our life, and there is a love for the people of God. Those born of God love those that have been born of God, and we see that in our life, and that assures us that God has done a work of grace in our life. And one of the things that we see and have as a a result of this, this this confidence, is that we are confident before God. And as we think about this, this is an important blessing that God has given to us. We need to understand that as believers, a confidence before God is a gospel-based confidence. I want to make that clear here this morning as we've been talking about assurance Our assurance is not based upon what we do in terms of our being right with God. It's not by loving loving our brethren or keeping the commands that Christ has given to us that makes us right before God. 
The hope of the believer is founded in Christ alone. And this confidence is a gospel-based confidence that rests upon Jesus and what he has done for us. And it's important that we understand this. And the word that he uses here, beloved, if our heart does, does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God or before God. This little preposition has this idea of being toward or face-to-face. It's used of Jesus in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Christ, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The same preposition that's used here. Jesus was face-to-face with God, the Father. And he is the Word. He was face-to-face with God, And he is the word. So it speaks about this union and this intimacy that the son has with the father. And as we think about that, this is what Christ has done for us. Just as in all of eternity, Jesus, before his father, was face to face with him and and intimate relationship with him. So this language is used to speak of a believer. We have confidence before the father, before God. John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, same preposition, to the Father, his face toward the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. We see this again in 1 Peter three eighteen, where Peter writes and he says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, to be face-to-face with God, if you will, to bring us in this close face-to-face relationship. And John says we are able to know as born-again Christians that we have confidence toward God, in the very presence of God, in the very face of God. And what an amazing truth that is. You think about Isaiah when he saw this vision of the Lord high and lifted up in the temple and, and his heart is overwhelmed by this. He, he feels his sinfulness, his undoneness. I'm unworthy to be in the presence of this holy God. Well, it is Christ. It is Christ who enables sinners to be forgiven and to stand confident before God, before the Father. And it is the work of Jesus Christ that brings this about. B.F. Westcott said this, The thought here is of the boldness with which the Son appears before the Father and not that which the accused appears before the judge. And Just as Jesus has acceptance before his Father and face-to-face relationship, so it is with the believer. There is this boldness, and it, it does not come from us. It comes from the work of Christ and what he has done, whereby we can stand united by faith in Christ and accepted before the Father. So we have this confidence, he says, before God. Secondly, we see that it's a a bold confidence. It's not arrogant. It's not a self-asserting kind of boldness. It's a boldness that has been secured by Christ, not by anything that we have done. And therefore, we're able to come into his presence with boldness. The author of Hebrews especially writes about this boldness. If you'll look back in in Hebrews, just back a few pages, Hebrews 
chapter 10, we have here the apostle writing and telling us about this assurance and this boldness with which we can come into the presence of God. Having spoken about Christ who has entered in, not to an earthly sanctuary, but he by his blood has entered into the heavenly sanctuary and made atonement and accomplished eternal redemption, it allows us as believers to have confidence to come before God and to be assured. And there's this sense of boldness that we have. Look at verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the author of Hebrews says we have this boldness that we come into his presence. Over in chapter 12, having contrasted how God came down at Mount Sinai and there was this fear and trembling in the hearts of the people that God was drawing near unto them. Stay away from the mountain, don't go near. And there's this trembling that is associated with this. Verse 21 says, it was, a ter- it was terrifying uh, to the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But Notice verse 22, but you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the just men made perfect. But notice this, what we have come to, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. So we see that there is this boldness with which the believer who's united to Christ is able to have confidence before the almighty, holy God. This is the blessing of those who belong to him. And so our assurance is based upon that we can do this. It's based upon what Christ has done. And then the Spirit's work in us is showing us the fingerprints of grace, that we belong to Christ. And therefore, John says, we can have such a boldness and a confidence in the very presence of God. And this is a present and a future confidence that we have. Here in John, he uses the present tense. We continually have confidence toward God. We have this boldness, as it were, of our standing and our acceptance before this holy God. It's an abiding confidence that the believer has. Jesus said, I give unto my sheep, I give unto them eternal life, and they're never going to perish. And the love of God is never going to waver. His disposition toward his children will never change. We don't have to wonder about that. We've been loved with an everlasting love. And this confidence that we have is an enduring and an abiding confidence 
Psalm 103, 17 says, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Lamentations tells us that when we woke this morning, that God's mercies were new again to us today. We desperately need those mercies. And we receive them again today out of the fullness of Christ. And so we have this present confidence before God. And Paul, writing to the Romans in Romans 8, and those wonderful verses of Romans 8 at the latter end of the chapter says this, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor life nor death nor things present nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where is the love of God found? It is found in Christ. And if you are united by faith to Christ, there is nothing in all of heaven and earth that can separate you from the love of God. And so this confidence that we have is a present and abiding, continuing confidence that we can have and be assured of. But it's also a future assurance John's already talked about this back in chapter 2, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him. And when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. There's this confidence that when Christ comes, the judge of all the earth, that the heart of the believer is confident and assured he need not fear the judgment that is to come. There will be many crying for the rocks to fall upon them when the wrath of the Lamb is poured out in this world. But for the believer, there is a confidence that we have, not only in this life, but when Christ comes or when we go, when we die and go to be with him. This leads to the second blessing, and that is that we have access to God in prayer, verses 22 and 23. This confidence that we have toward God is a confidence now that we are able to come, and we are able to make petitions. We're able to pray for him. This is an amazing thing, that as believers, we have access to God by prayer. So John goes on and says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We are able, again, in the words of the author of of Hebrews, we're able to come boldly to the throne of grace. To find help in our time of need. We're able to come and make our requests known unto God. And to know that he hears the prayers of his people. Now he says here that whatever we ask, we receive. Does that mean... We get a blank check as a Christian. A lot of prosperity gospel out there, a lot of preachers saying that, yep, you just name it and claim it. You can get your Rolex watch. You can get your Lexus or whatever it is that you're desiring. That's not what John is saying here. This is not the prosperity gospel. The context of 1 John is that this is a relationship in which we are children. We belong to the Father. We come in prayer to our Father to ask of him good things that he has promised to give to us. James gives a warning. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. You ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your own lusts. God's not going to hear those prayers. 
but he does hear the prayers of his children as children praying to their father, even as a child would ask of his father of good things. Jesus says, that's what he will do. Matthew 7, Jesus says, everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be open. What man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Of course, the answer is no, he would never do that. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? No, he would never do that. If you then, being evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. Sometimes we spoil them doing that. But, but we enjoy giving good gifts that are beneficial to them. If you, as being evil, know how to give good gifts to, you, to, to your children, how much more? Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those that ask him? And so what we see in context here, verse 22, it's because we keep his commandments and we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. This is the heart of the child of God as he comes in prayer. He's, he's wanting to please his Father. He's wanting to obey his Father and, and, and please him. And then when he comes, he's going to ask in accordance with who his father is and what his father has promised to give to his children. One commentator, Robert Law, said, to keep his commandments is the condition of being heard simply because such obedience is the evidence that our will is in harmony with God's will. And, of course, John will later tell us, and we'll talk more about prayer when we get to chapter 5. He says there that, As we pray, we learn to pray as our elder brother did, not my will, but your will be done. If we ask anything in accordance with his will, he will do that for us. So we're learning to script our prayers based upon promises that God has promised to give to us. We have this assurance as his children, as we come to him and ask of him these good things that he's promised to us that he will hear us. Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Isn't that a wonderful promise? No good thing. No good thing will he withhold from those who are his children, those who walk uprightly. And again, what a blessing this is. He goes on in verse 23 and says, well, what is, it to, what is it to keep his commandments, to do those things that are pleasing to him? Well, he sums it up here, verse 23, and this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of, the son, of, of his son, Jesus Christ. Number one, he commands us to believe in his son, to have fidelity to his son and who he is, and there's a A lot of names that are given here with regard to Jesus. It's kind of a compressed creed. Who is this Jesus? He's not just some vague Jesus. But he is the son. He's the very son of God. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus who comes to save his people from their sins. Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is also the Christ the anointed one, the promised Messiah that had been promised for for centuries. This is the one to whom we are commanded to believe. 
that our faith must be fixed upon him. And it is a command that is given to us. Cling to Christ. Believe in Christ. Again, this is foundational to the Christian faith. We're saved by faith. And that faith is an enduring faith. We continue to cling to Christ and follow him. But then he goes on to talk about love for the brethren. And he talks about this is a command that is given to you. And even into verse 24, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him. So we see the three strands that are being woven together here in 1 John. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for the brethren and keeping the commandments, what Christ has commanded us to do. That leads us thirdly this morning to this third great blessing. This is a wonderful truth. It is communion with God. To those whose hearts do not condemn them, they have come to faith by God's grace in Jesus Christ. They're trusting in him alone, and they're seeking to do those things that are pleasing to him. They don't live a perfect life. They stumble in many ways. But the goal of their life, the video of their life is saying this, that they love Christ and they want to obey him and follow him. Well, here is this third blessing that is given to them. They have communion with the living God. Notice this. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides. It's a present tense again. Abides in him. Abides in the Father or abides in Christ. Abides in him. And notice this. It's mutual. And he in him. There is this close intimate relationship, this intertwining, if you will, of abiding together in fellowship, in oneness. Sometimes you may, with your little kids, you may grab them up in your bed sometime and you get all tangled up together and you just, like a a one big ball, there's this closeness and this intimacy intertwined together. And as we think about marriage, Genesis 2.24 tells us that a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall cling to his wife and they shall what? They shall become one flesh. There's this closeness, this intimacy that God has designed marriage to be and what a beautiful thing that it is. What a wonderful gift that has been given. A mutual sharing together and becoming one. And you know, the day you you got married, you thought you knew that person pretty well. But after years and years of marriage, you realize there was so much more to learn. And you continue to learn and you continue to become more and more that one flesh. That's the design and the purpose that God would have for us, the blessing. And so it is. Paul in Ephesians 5 says, really, this is not speaking so much about marriage. It's true, but that's a picture of a greater marriage. And it is the marriage of Christ with his people. There is this intimacy and this union, this abiding communion and fellowship that they enjoy with him. And so John 17, Jesus prays this for his people. Father, that all these people that you've given to me, I'm going to give to them eternal life. And what is this life? But that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent to know in a very intimate and a personal way. This has been given, this is the privilege that God has given to his children, that we would know him in this way. And then he goes on in John 17 and prays this, that they all may be one. 
as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There is this union between Christ and his Father. And he says this, that they also may be one with us. I cannot fully grasp and understand this, but there is this mysterious union that the people of God enjoy with their God. Fellowship, intimacy, communion. The creator God of the universe, the one who has redeemed us, that we may know him. Colossians, or Paul writing to the Galatians says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not I, but Christ, what? He lives in me. Christ lives in me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the means by which we know this is by his spirit that he's given to us. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We're going to talk more about this tonight. But he has given us his spirit so that we may know more and more that we abide in him, that we know him and have fellowship with him. It's the spirit who objectively in our life ministers enables us, inspires us to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that empowers us to live righteous lives. A lot of times you'll hear Christians say, well, I'm just human. No, you have the Spirit of God who is living in you to live differently, to live God-fearing life. You have the Spirit at work in you. It is the Spirit who assures our hearts Even when they condemn us, it is the Spirit who is at work to to assure us that we belong to him and that we know him. And by the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. This formula that we see here about this mutual indwelling of Christ speaks about the closest possible union between God and men. It's found through Christ and union with him. Turn, if you will, as we close to one verse. John chapter 14. This is, was read for us by Samuel. This is an amazing statement. And this touches on what we are looking at here. John 14 and verse 23. I would encourage you to memorize this verse. Jesus said to him, If anyone loves me, it's what we've been talking about in 1 John. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And notice this, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. What a beautiful picture that is given him here. We will come, and we will make our home there. We will abide with him. What great blessings the Lord has given to us. We have confidence before God. And that we have the ability and the access to make our requests known to him. And we have this confidence that we have communion and fellowship that we enjoy with him through the spirit that he has given to us. They come and make their abode in us. What great love that God has given to us. It's our privilege today to remember the price that was paid so that we might know such
communion and fellowship with our God, have such confidence before him and have the ability to pray to him. And it's because, all because of the work of Christ. It's not what our hands have done. It's what Christ has done. I invite you to take your insert this morning.